y'all. This is Sam's Aunt Betty. This week on the show, NPR veterans correspondent Quill Lawrence and co-host of the NPR podcast, The Indicator, Stacey Vanek-Smith. All right, let's start the show. Hey, y'all from NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. Happy weekend to my guests and to my listeners. We've got two great guests joining me from New York this week. Stacy Quill, hello, hello, hello. Hi, Sam. Hey. I wish y'all were here in California with me where it's nice and sunny this morning. We're bitter New Yorkers. We'd rather be over here. Exactly. We have fewer cases of coronavirus. That's, I, think that's, I think that's. I think that's all. That's the only card we've got to play right now. Yeah. Too soon. So soon. Start it. Start it right. So crazy. It's okay. It stays in. Listen, stays you have in. the beach. You have all this produce. And tacos. I can't go anywhere this weekend. Well, Stacey Vanek Smith, NPR correspondent, co-host of the Indicator podcast on Planet Money, Quill Lawrence, NPR correspondent covering veterans issues. Thank you both for being here. We're going to talk more about coronavirus and some other stuff. Um, but first, I want to talk about a movie that may have been affected by the biggest news story of this week, coronavirus. I will play you a song from the movie. Guess what film I'm talking about? Fool me once, fool me twice. What kind of song does that sound like? This sounds like a heartbreak movie. Though. I'm going to go Disney. It's some animated thing. Oh, y'all are way off. This is a new James Bond theme. Doesn't this sound Bondian? No. Is this like James Bond like thinks this about is his so life? Bond. So this is the new Billie Eilish song, James Bond theme. Oh. And you know Billie Eilish, who I love. She's very emo. This is a very emo yeah. James Bond song. Is James song. Bond like going through something now? Is this like, <laughs> is it? Is this his journey within? Like forget the villains outside. Now it's time to tackle the villains Inside. inside. Well, the whole point of this thing is that um, his journey is delayed. Coronavirus has led to a several-month delay of the new James Bond movie. So this Billie Eilish James Bond theme came out a few weeks ago in anticipation of the film's release on April 10th. But now that coronavirus has become a thing all across the country, they've pushed this movie back to November 25th. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah, like several months. So now there's this new Bond theme with no movie to go with it. Daniel Craig, who is James Bond, he's on SNL this weekend, you know, going there to promote this movie that is now delayed by six months. Yeah, it's always mm. nice to see Daniel Craig, though. Right. Yeah. He'll make it work. <laughs> He'll make it work. I will say it is so crazy to see how coronavirus day by day is affecting literally, it seems, every part of our waking lives. I ran into a friend of mine on the platform this morning. I kissed her on the cheek and then we both recoiled. Really? And no one will shake hands. They're doing this weird elbow bump, which, you know, I miss shaking hands and hugging. I don't. It's been great. (laughs) It's been liberating. Don't touch me, stranger. Anyway, speaking of coronavirus, we're going to start the show as we always do, having my panelists uh, share their week of news in only three words. Um, Stacey. Yes. I already have a spoiler. I know that your three words are about coronavirus, but they're about a kind of unique twist in this coronavirus story. Tell us. Coronavirus panic buying coronavirus panic buying. Okay. What are you talking about? These are products that people have been buying in order to prepare themselves for the coronavirus. Products that have seen a big spike in business as a result of people reacting to all the news about coronavirus. The corona bump. The corona bump. Yeah. Okay. What products have experienced a corona bump? 
Well, this is where things get kind of delightful. So there are kind of the obvious ones like uh, face masks have seen a huge bump of like 179 percent. This is data from Nielsen. Hand sanitizer, thermometers, cleaning products, things like that. Uh, In fact, I talked to... um, Two men in Brooklyn, they they own a little consulting firm. Mm-hmm. And uh, sort of on a lark four years ago, they developed this product. One of the men, this man, Andrew Kessler, had been to Asia. Mm-hmm. And he noticed that people wore face masks when they were sick. And mm-hmm. he thought he wanted to design a face mask people could wear that wouldn't look like a face mask. So he designed this scarf called the scoff, which is a smash word of scarf and cough. It's just a – it looks like a scarf, but uh-huh. there's a pocket and you slide this like very powerful – air filter in. Anyway, it was, you know, they would get like a dozen orders uh, a week or so. Now their site is like crashed. And so Andrew Kessler and Robbie Patrick are like completely out of everything. I have a clip to play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can't even keep up with that volume. We're just not designed. We are not 3M. Have you had friends and family contacting you and being like, hey, don't you make a product? Uh, yeah, I've turned some of my beloved family away and feel that we like family members. You've had to be like, I'm so sorry. It's not happening. No, it's more like mom. You'll be, you'll be okay. These are dark times. It's crazy. Well, (laughs) and like to hear you say that the weirdest stuff is seeing an uptick right now. Like you were telling me this week that the work websites, Slack and Zoom were seeing upticks as well. What's that about? Um, I think it's a lot of people preparing to work from home. So that's gotten a big bump. Then, like, Costco and all these supermarkets have talked about the things that are selling out from their shelves. Now, this is, like, where things are kind of funny. Uh Um, Oat milk has seen, like, a giant spike in demand. Why oat milk? I think because it keeps, you know, you can keep it for a long time. Oh, it lasts longer than dairy milk. And fruit snacks. (laughs) Stop. I know. It makes me love America a lot. You know, it's like... There's a pandemic coming, all this crazy politics, and, like, what do we do? We buy we stuff. Buy, we buy face masks and fruit snacks, yeah. we, you know? Like, we might wash our hands, but we will for sure <laughs> buy everything we can. No. So it's, like, fruit snacks, dried beans, energy drinks, pretzels, and supplements. These are things that <laughs> oh my have been really selling well. Quill, does this kind of, kind of make sense to you? <laughs> no. uh, does it make sense to me? I don't... I don't know how serious – I'm not normally that alarmist, but we are kind of in uncharted territory, I guess. I don't know. I'm just figuring like grocery delivery services are going to make a killing, but they'll keep delivering. I don't know. Oh, yeah, yeah. My question with this, you know, it's like on the one hand, Stacey, you have these examples of these businesses and products doing really well in a coronavirus economy. Yes. But big picture – The market's been falling all week. Oh, I mean, it's terrible for the economy because the global supply chain is so linked in with China. I mean, Mm. so many companies have parts made in China, get raw materials from China, use labor from China that, you know, this is and or sell a lot of things to China. So this is this is really hurting global demand. All these companies from Apple to Nike have come out saying that their sales are going to go down or they're not going to be able to get products out. In fact, the makers of Scoff actually can't make more Scoffs because part of their filter, come an ingredient in their filter comes from China Wait, and they can't get it. Oh my goodness. So you're saying that even some products that are experiencing a corona bump, they'll still be hurt because they rely on their product supply chain yeah. coming from China. 
Yeah. And then, you know, like such a huge part of our economy is the service sector. That's Mm -hmm. like one of the biggest areas of growth. And, you know, like you were saying with the James Bond movie, people are going to movies less. They're going out to eat less. They're staying home more. Mm. You know, that's hard on a lot of businesses. Is Campbell's Soup like doing really well? Um. I imagine they are. I mean, the from according to the Nielsen data, dried beans are, dried beans. <laughs> are doing well. I don't know. Lightweight. Good, yeah, good they're payoff, lightweight. Good bang for the buck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Stacy has a pump of sanitizer in the studio. Oh, yeah. I, I So I did buy some hand sanitizer, but the only kind I could find was this peppermint and citrus. Oh, God. Mm-mm, no. That and it sounds sm- like the it most It smells like a gin thing. and tonic. No, well, smells, you know, okay, maybe you got me there. I know. It actually, it does. It smells like a gin and tonic. Nice. The gin and tonic, for the record, does not work as hand sanitizer. Yes, listeners, you should know. I mean, it doesn't work. Do we know that for sure? It takes the edge off. <laughs> I know. Right? You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders, joined by two guests in studio in New York this week, Quill Lawrence, NPR correspondent covering veterans' issues, and Stacey Vanek-Smith, NPR correspondent and co-host of the Indicator podcast from Planet Money, all about the economy. Uh, Quill, I want to ask you for your three words. They are about a story that should have been a lot bigger in this last two weeks, but I think coronavirus and other stuff kind of covered it up. Yeah, I mean, my three words, and I, I think you'll allow hyphens and contractions, right? Yes. You're yes. cheating. No. <laughs> I would say my three words are pull out and declare victory. Yes. As in just leave and then say we won. This which is in is, regards to? Well, Afghanistan. And the news headline here is that, gosh, what, almost two weeks ago now, the Trump um, administration announced that eventually all American troops in Afghanistan will be gone. And those troops' departure begins ASAP, huh? Tell us exactly what they announced. Yeah. So the the key thing to note here that this is not an Afghanistan peace deal This is a bilateral agreement between the United States and the Taliban, Hmm. which is, you know, still an organization designated as terrorist by the United States and others. It is not a a deal that really includes the government of Afghanistan, which is key. The Taliban for years had been saying, we aren't going to negotiate with the illegitimate puppet uh, regime in Kabul. We'll only negotiate directly with the U.S. And the U.S. had refused that in large part because... It undercuts the legitimacy of the government in Kabul, the Afghan government. So at this moment, we have this agreement with the Taliban where the U.S. says that they'll draw down in the next uh, 135 days, they'll draw down to about 8,600 troops. And that's just drawing back to uh, the numbers that were there in the Obama administration. How many are there right now? Uh, 12,000-ish. So they're going to go from 12,000 to 8-something thousand in the next 135 days. But then in 14 months, I'm reading, all of our troops will be out of there? Right. That seems pretty stark. Yes, absolutely. And it's something that um, the Department of Defense says is conditions-based. But if you look at the deal, it really just seems like we're leaving. And on the one hand, uh, that's what candidate Trump said he wanted to do. That's, that's what, what a lot president, of Americans want, right? That's Yeah, that's yeah. the president has said that. And Americans, and I, and I think probably many people don't know that American veterans of the war in Afghanistan, a clear majority want that too. My question for you though, you know, so there are some on the right, some hawks that are usually aligned with Trump that are saying, hey, this, this drawdown has no conditions, you know, has no assurances that, you know, we'll get what we need as we leave. But, you know, me as a layperson here, 
Hasn't the U.S. tried to do conditions for the last several years and that did not work? Like, isn't the only real way out of a situation this messy just to, like, totally leave? Right? Yeah, I, mean, I don't know. Yeah, these hawks, in, um, and there are, there are some of them in both parties, but defense hawks will say uh, that when we left Iraq without sort of enough of residual force, we had to go back in to fight ISIS a couple of years later. Mm. The, I mean, for my Afghan friends on the ground, I think they're extremely worried that um, the United States will have left. And although there have been some gains in health, in women's rights, in women's education, growth of the economy, uh, what you really have are still a lot of the same exact warlords, only mm. now they're richer. Mm. I, I've seen nothing to indicate really that the country – isn't in serious uh -huh. danger of falling right back into a just a horrific civil war that kills tens of thousands of mm -hmm. civilians, mostly. Last question for you both. I could imagine a time when an American president went to address the nation and say, we're taking thousands of American troops out of a war zone. That would be front page news for a week. This thing seemed to come and go. Trump announced it. And we kind of looked at the headline and left it. Why do you think that is? What is it about where we are now in terms of how we relate to the military and Afghanistan itself that causes us to just seemingly not pay too much attention to this stuff right now? I mean, I think part of it is it's not black and white. Mm -hmm. And a virus coming, I mean, that is sort of like cinematic and yeah. black and white and scary and you can buy fruit snacks. And, <laughs> you know, it's I feel like that is something that's happening that sort of requires, not necessarily requires, but in our heads, like requires action. Mm -hmm. So at least for me, that that is easier to focus on. Yeah. yeah. So I moved home from living in Kabul in 2012 and I'd been covering Iraq and Afghanistan for a dozen years at that point. And uh, I would say... It took me about a month before I could go an entire day, sometimes an entire week, and completely forget there was a war on. Mm. And I had been living in that country mm. for almost longer than I hadn't as an adult. <laughs> and I could forget that mm. it was happening. So if you don't have skin in the game, and only 1% of us do. What do you mean by that 1%? Oh, so there's a civilian military divide in this country. And only about 3 million people have cycled through Iraq and Afghanistan in almost 20 years of war. And the rest of the country, I would think, was encouraged to really not do anything but shop. You mm. know, a, a retired special forces general told me a couple of months ago, I was asking him about this. And saying, you know, isn't it crazy the way this was almost set up by design for the American public not to be involved and not to feel any pain? And he said, mm. you know, the U.S. public's done everything that was asked of them, mm. which is nothing. This is clearly a story that we should be focusing on a lot more. And I hope that in the coming weeks and months, as this withdrawal happens, uh, that Americans do. Anywho, on that note, it is time for a break. Coming up, we are going to talk about how scared you should be about coronavirus. We'll talk with NPR Shankar Vedantam. He is the host of the podcast Hidden Brain, a show all about how our minds work. And he will tell us why most of the time we think about fear, especially around coronavirus, in the wrong way. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. We'll be right back. This message comes from NPR sponsor Chobani Oat, made to taste just like milk. 
It's creamy, frothy, and great with coffee and cookies. But without the dairy, because it's not milk, it's almost milk. New Chobani Oat. This message comes from NPR sponsor Discover. Did you know that Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year automatically? With no limit to how much you can earn or how much they'll match. Plus, Discover is accepted at over 95% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when you use your Discover card, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2019 Nielsen Report. Limitations apply. On a secret military recording, a sound so haunting, one scientist believed it could change the world. My mind was racing as I listened to this, and I thought, this, this is the way. Join NPR's Invisibilia for the first episode of our new season. We are back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders, joined by two guests this week, my colleagues and friends. Quill Lawrence, NPR correspondent covering veterans' issues, and Stacey Vanek-Smith, NPR correspondent and co-host of the Indicator podcast from Planet Money. Question for you both. What is the weirdest thing that coronavirus has made you do in the last few weeks? Oh, this is easy. I was getting ready to do an interview, Mm -hmm. and I was on the subway, Mm -hmm. and I had to hold the pole. You know, there wasn't a seat, so I was holding the pole, and I got out of the subway, and I wanted to put Purell on my hands, but I couldn't find it mm-hmm. in my purse. Mm-hmm. And I started like ripping off all of my equipment bags and everything and just rifling, rifling through my purse oh my goodness. to try to find the Purell. And I was like, where's my Purell? Where's my Purell? <laughs> then I found the Purell yeah. and disinfected my hands. But after you had touched all of your stuff with subway well, hands. And just been so panicked. Yeah. Quill? Sam, I don't know if you can relate to this. I don't know how long you've been a bearded person. Ah, uh, oh. for, gosh, I, a decade now, yeah. Okay, see, so I grow one every winter because I hate shaving and I can kind of get away with it for the winter. And so mm. I'm sitting here the whole time like playing with the beard because it's this hair on my face and it's so, so new and all this. And I'm really, you're not supposed, it's, it's not so much the hand washing as the not washing your hands and then touching your face. Like, I can't help it. I touch my face all the time. Well, because we're human beings and it's our face. Right. Like, I don't understand <laughs> exactly. this advice. Like, don't touch your face. I'm So I'm going to shave my beard. I'm shaving it off early really? this Whoa. year. Yeah. Whoa. Probably tonight. I, I asked know. this question just to, like, speak to how much coronavirus fear has been feeling really wacky for all of us these last few days, last few weeks. So I called up a friend of mine. His name is Shankar Vedantam. He is the host of NPR's Hidden Brain. Shankar, hi. Hey, Sam. Thank you for having me. I'm realizing this is your first time on the show, uh, and I apologize. No worries. It apparently takes a global pandemic before you will have me on your show, sir. <laughs> so Shankar hosts Hidden Brain, which is a show all about the unconscious patterns that drive human behavior, things like fear. Uh, so he is the perfect person for this kind of chat. But we also begin with talking about why fear, in general, is such a tough feeling to shake. Fear is actually one of the oldest uh, emotions in the brain. If you go back, you know, species very distant from humans, the fear circuits in the brain are almost identical in species that evolved, you know, millions of years before humans did. So in many ways, these are very ancient systems in the brain. Fear helps keep us safe. And so it Mm. plays a very, very valuable role in our life. That said, over the last 15, 20 years, there's been a lot of work showing that humans are often not fearful of things they should be fearful of and Mm. fearful of things 
that they shouldn't be fearful of. Now, this doesn't mean that the fear circuits in the brain are always wrong, but it does mean that in some ways, because fear evolved at a time when we were confronting very different kinds of threats than the threats we confront now, our minds in some ways are more attentive to the kinds of threats that our ancestors faced rather than the threats that we face today. Give me an example. If you think about the top leading causes of death in the United States, um, smoking-related illnesses, uh, obesity, hypertension, things related to diabetes, Mm -hmm. if you ask the average American how afraid are you of smoking-related illnesses and heart attacks, if you ask the media how often do you have stories about smoking-related deaths and heart attacks and strokes on your front pages, you will find that in general we vastly undercount how afraid we should be of something like heart attacks and strokes. And again, this makes sense from this evolutionary perspective. Most of our ancestors didn't get to the point where they died of a heart attack or a stroke. They died because they got eaten by a predator. (laughs) And so in some ways, our brains are much more attuned to threats posed to us by, you know, serial killers and sharks and terrorists than they are to smoking-related illnesses, even though if you totaled up the number of Americans who die from smoking-related illnesses, you're you're talking of something on the scale of a a 9-11 scale attack every other day in the country. Yeah. And I find, you know, what further complicates this, what should I be fearful of? What should I not be fearful of? The internet makes it hard. Twitter makes it hard. Facebook makes it hard because if you live a life where you're scrolling through the news and headlines every day, Mm -hmm. you don't know which to focus on, which is more important. A tweet about this is next to a tweet about that. Mm -hmm. And it's all in this constant flow. It kind of distorts where our attention should lie. That's exactly right, Sam. It, it's also the case that because the media are covering, you know, the questions related to coronavirus so intensely, it's very hard to actually escape coverage of it. So you're reading about it in the press, you're hearing about it on the radio, you're watching it on television, your friends are talking about it. And so you're getting all these signals constantly that tell you, here's something extremely frightening, extremely fearful. You're constantly reminded of it. And because you're constantly reminded of it, it comes very readily to mind. So if you ask the average American today, what should you be fearful of? It wouldn't be surprising for Americans to put the coronavirus at the very top of that list or close to the top of the list just because it's so easily available to our minds. We draw the intuitive conclusion in some ways that it actually is a very, very serious threat. Mm. So then knowing that, how do we fight that? (laughs) What are some practical tips for me, for our listeners about how to combat some of those negative fear practices, I guess you could call them. Well, let me actually complicate the picture a little bit. I think in the case of the coronavirus, (laughs) it actually isn't clear how fearful we should be. So it wouldn't be right to say we are overly fearful of the coronavirus today, or Mm. it isn't actually right to say we are under fearful of the coronavirus today, because the truth is no one actually knows how afraid we should be. Well, yeah, because like we still don't actually know how many folks have it here in the States. Exactly. The numbers are still iffy. We're still waiting to get folks tested. So, yeah, you're right. We still don't know a lot. We, we don't know. So given that none of us can actually peer into the future and say, here's what's going to happen in two months or three months or six months, the way to actually deal with something like this is to actually listen to public health authorities. And in many mm. ways, this is difficult to do. It's easier for us to listen to our Twitter feeds and listen to mm-hmm. our neighbor who's scared. But people in public health departments are actually paying very close attention to the data. And this is actually an excellent time to prioritize what they are telling you over what your own mind is telling you. Okay. Easier said than done, but I hear you. (laughs) Indeed. What has surprised you the most about the way 
we've collectively responded to coronavirus so far in terms of our fear and our public reaction to all this stuff? Well, I would say that one of the most interesting things is that it's actually excellent that we've had a new virus basically emerge in one part of the world. And within a matter of days or weeks, the entire world is on high alert. A threat that was at one point, you know, far away and distant if you live in the United States is being treated as if it's an imminent threat here. And on the one hand, you can actually argue that's brilliant. That's actually exactly what you should be doing. Pay attention to things that are coming before they actually hit you so you can take precautions. The downside of this is that because we are so worried about this, we might sometimes choose actions that are actually counterproductive. So, for example, in the aftermath of 9-11, people were so fearful of flying on airplanes that they started driving a lot more. And what we know statistically is that you're risk- more dangerous it's than It's significantly flying. more dangerous than getting killed in a terrorist attack on a, on a plane. And now you actually greatly increase the risk you're mm. actually going to get killed. Mm. You are someone who thinks a lot about the brain and the mind and how it works and how to make it work well for you. Have you found yourself surprised in any way or disappointed in your reaction to coronavirus? Uh, Not so much disappointed, but I think just simply knowing that our minds work the way they do in itself is usually not a defense against our minds actually working the way they do. Uh, What I'm trying to say by that is, yes, you can know the the research that basically says we sometimes overcount some fears and undercount other fears. But merely knowing that is often not enough for our minds to now calibrate correctly. And so, yes, I, I would say that on the scale of things, I'm actually quite afraid of coronavirus because when I look at the press, I see all kinds of examples of things that could go wrong. And I can't help my mind starts turning and saying, what could happen if this happens and then that domino falls and what this happens? And at times like that, what you have to do and what I'm trying to do is to say, pay attention to the evidence. Listen to what the CDC is telling you. In many ways, trust what experts are saying. I mean, we live in an age, Sam, where people have come to undercount the value of authority and expertise. Mm -hmm. But I would actually argue that this is actually an excellent time, a a disaster, a catastrophe. This is when you actually need experts who actually are studying this, paying attention to the data, telling us how to think, how to respond. Also, wash your hands, people. Just do it. Indeed. Wash your hands. Indeed. Um, It's such a pleasure. I appreciate you so much. You calmed my fears in the last few minutes, so thank you for that. (laughs) Thank you, Sam. Thank you for having me on. All right, thanks again to Shankar Vedantam. He is the host of NPR's Hidden Brain podcast. All right, listeners, time for a break. When we come back, no fear, only fun. We'll play my favorite game, Who Said That? BRB. The following message comes from our sponsor, Chipotle, whose new queso blanco is made with milk sourced from Wisconsin farmers like Brianna Handel. Brianna and her family bought their farm in 2016 and are working to pay off their debts so they can make the farming life a viable future for their kids. I know so many um, older generation farms that are still so far in debt and then they're just passing it on to the next generation and hoping they're going to get out. Well, they probably have to get into debt themselves, the younger generation, to get started, and then they're accumulating their parents' debt. And I don't want that for my kids. So we we really do try hard to get the farm paid down if they do want to farm, but I will completely understand if they do not want to farm because they do see the struggles that go with it. But if they are going to farm, I want the farm to be in a good position financially that we could be in a position to help them out, actually. To learn more about how Chipotle is working to reinvigorate farming, go to chipotle.com farmers.
Hi, I'm Anoush Zamarodi, and I am the new host of NPR's TED Radio Hour. I am so excited because we are working on a bunch of new, amazing episodes. We're exploring big ideas about reinvention, making amends, and the psychological effects of climate change. Our first show drops March 13th. Please join me. We are back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders, your host, here with two guests this weekend, Stacey Vanek-Smith, NPR correspondent and co-host of The Indicator, a podcast from Planet Money all about the economy. Hi, Stacey. Thanks for being here. Hi, Sam. Also here with Quill Lawrence, NPR correspondent covering veterans' issues. Y'all, it is time for my favorite game, Who Said That? Now, Stacey, you've played before. It's Quill, true. you have not. What? I didn't I'm, know you'd played before. I'm terrible. I'm terrible at this game. I never know who said anything. Give Quill the rules, Stacey. Okay. We will hear a quote from the news, uh, and we it's our job to figure out who said that and kind of what they were talking about. So, but it's some it's some kind of like newsy thing that happened this week. Are we cooperating or are we competing? Oh, you're competing. And what do we win? Not a thing. Pride. Oh, good. Yeah. All right. Bragging rights. Bragging we're rights. In the, we're in the same I'll give office, you my, so. my hand sanitizer. Really? <laughs> okay. It might be the only one left in the city. So. I know. All right. This is stakes are high now. So <laughs> I'm going to lose bad. Here we go. First quote. I feel like a lot of people put it out there as a negative thing. For me, it's more years under my belt, more learning and knowing what I want and what I don't want and what I won't settle for. This is about a reality show. The Bachelorette? Yes. Yes. Wow. <laughs> it's been announced that the next Bachelorette uh, will be 38 years old. Oldest Bachelorette in Bachelor and Bachelorette Woo-hoo! history. Oh, my God. 38. <laughs> so I th- think that's wonderful. I'm ex- That's, right? that's exciting yeah. for me. Yeah. Her name is Claire Crowley. Um, she's been on The Bachelor before. And, and she has on, a job and everything, too, right? It's she has like, a job. She's I a, think she is. A, oh, she is a Sacramento hairstylist. She was first introduced to Bachelor Nation in 2014 as a contestant. Uh, she also did two stints on Bachelor in Paradise. I'm excited for her. Me, too. Quill's Excellent. like, uh. No, I'm just thinking, trying to remember when I was 38. It's been a while. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds, she sounds incredibly young to me. Anyway. Yeah. How old are they normally? I would say late yeah. 20s is sort of the sweet spot for, right. for single ladies on reality shows. Also, there's news that the Bachelor franchise is considering a Bachelor for seniors. Oh, I heard this. That's <gasps> I right. Sign that me idea. up. To the, yes. Sign me up. I love that. I, I God, I want that. watch the hell out of yes. that show. Yes. Mm. Yes. All right. Uh, Stacey, you got that first point. Next quote. It's a very short one. The quote is, I broke a nail. Someone who broke a nail protecting her boss this week. This was uh, Joe Biden's wife, Dr. Jill Biden, right? Close enough. We'll give it to you. Thank you. Okay. Yes. (laughs) Are you trying to have me lose my hand sanitizer? (laughs) (laughs) So that quote is actually from Simone Sanders. She's a senior advisor on the Biden campaign. So both Simone Sanders and Dr. Jill Biden. helped take out a lunging vegan protester who tried to interrupt Joe Biden uh, during his Super Tuesday night victory speech. Um, Sanders came up and dragged the protester away from Biden after uh, 
Jill Biden leapt to his defense and blocked the protester with her own body. Oh, and it was a moment sweet. of I these two superhero so women defending <laughs> the crowd. Jewel. Body blocking, breaking nails. You know, lunging vegans is really an underestimated <laughs> threat in this country. You, everyone's worried about the coronavirus. <laughs> Brooklyn's newest, hottest band is lunging vegan. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, this game is tied. This last quote for the Marvels. Shocking. Ready? I like that I got the Bachelorette and Quill got like the political news. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Just need to start rethinking some things about my life. Uh, this last quote is also political. The quote is: "The fight may take a new form, but I will be in that fight, and I want you in this fight with me. We will persist." Elizabeth, Elizabeth Warren. <gasps> it's a tie. Yay! Yay! Oh, that's like the best possible is, outcome. We great. nailed it. Yeah. You know, Quill and I were so nervous about who said that. Because really? Because we feel like we're deeply unhip. You're well, very we, felt, hip. we feel like a li- we're a little unhip and that yeah, like totally it might be like Ariana Grande talking about her breakup or something. And we were like, what are we going to do? Yeah. It's all good. So that quote comes from Senator Elizabeth Warren. She left the race for president this week. She's declined to endorse any of the other candidates, but there's been a lot of soul-searching since she left the race on the left about whether a woman can ever be president. And it was a kind of a sad few days for certain parts of the Internet and the country. Yeah. But I will say, of Team Warren, her dog Bailey uh, probably found the best way to mourn her exit. There's this hilarious video of him at Warren campaign headquarters stealing someone's burrito. And then you see (laughs) Bailey the dog chomping on this burrito and he will not let it go. And like three or four staffers are trying to pry it out of Bailey's mouth. And Bailey is like, nope. I'm eating my feelings. I'm eating my feelings. Get away from me. Exactly. You do you, Bailey. Leave me in peace. You do you, Bailey. All right. On that note, congrats to both of you because you both tied for a win. Um... Great news all around, huh? I'm going to get a plaque for us. You should. I you think, should. Yeah, we can, we can di- divide it in half like those old best friend necklaces. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> that concludes Who Said That. Now it's time to end the show as we always do. Every week we ask our listeners to share with us the best things that have happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag. Let's listen. Hi, Sam. It's Julia from Vermont. The best part of my week was taking my five-year-old daughter to New York City and... The best part was actually getting a huge, crazy shake milkshake that was covered in whipped cream and cotton candy, and her eyes lit up like the 4th of July when she saw that thing, and it was so much fun. Hi, Sam. This is Megan from San Diego. And the best thing that happened to me this week was that my dog played fetch for the very first time. The best part of my week was running my third marathon. This native-born Texan finally got to Bucky's. Bucky's is awesome. Hi, I'm Tamarack Broha, and one of the best parts of my week was listening to NPR. Today, I got two huge pieces of news. First, I found out that I was awarded a scholarship to work for the Daily Iowan, and then a few hours later, I found out I'm also the High School Iowa Journalist of the Year. Hey Sam, this is Craig calling from Oak Park, Illinois. And what's making me happy this week is that my group of 10-ish best friends from high school just concluded our 75th book in our all-male book club. And I'm so grateful for this group of friends who have been able to let down their guard and discuss 
all matter of things that a group of cisgender 45 year old white guys might not otherwise have the opportunity to talk about thanks sam love your show thanks for everything thanks for listening i really love the show and your tweets are also the reason i binged love is blind this weekend i have a lot of feelings about that thank you so much sam thanks bye speaking of love is blind that reunion this week, perhaps the best part of my week. Don't spoil it. I haven't seen it yet. Oh my gosh. It's your fault that I watched that show, Sam Sanders. My mission for the year is to make everyone watch Love is Blind as we quarantine ourselves for coronavirus. Is that going to make the world a better place? Yes, it will. Because we'll be laughing. Okay, that's true. Thanks to all the listeners you heard from there. Craig, Natalie, Tamarick, Steve, Carol, Megan, and Julia. I want to see photos of that Bucky's because we love Bucky's, And I want that all-male book club to send me their reading list. Sounds quite I interesting. Know me too. I yeah, want to see cool. it. Listeners, share with me the best part of your week at any point throughout any week. Just record yourself on your phone and email that voice file to me at samsanders at npr.org. samsanders at npr.org. On that note, now it's time to say goodbye to my panelists. Sad to see you go. It's a pleasure to have you here this week. Quill Lawrence, NPR correspondent covering veterans' issues, and Stacey Vanek-Smith, economics correspondent and co-host of the NPR podcast, The Indicator. Thank you for your time. Thank you. This week, It's Been a Minute was produced by Anjali Sastry, Danny Hensel, and Janae West. Our fearless editor is Kitty Isley. Our superhero intern is Hafsa Fatima. Our director of programming is Steve Nelson. Our big boss is NPR senior VP of Programming, Anya Grundman. Our engineer is Josh Newell. All right, listeners, till next time, thank you for listening. I'm Sam Sanders. Talk soon. Hold up. 